a podcast is, in the first place, an object outside us. A thing that by its properties satisfies human wants of some sort or another. The utility of a podcast makes it a use value. Use values become a reality only by use or consumption. At a certain stage of development, a podcast brings forth the material agencies for the dissolution of itself and your heart. It's Knackers and a badge. Welcome to Knackers and the Badge. I am a lady formerly known as Helen Razor. I am joined by a small stuffed commodity in a bear shape. He is known as Knackers. If it is your first time in this den of whining about injustice and inequality, welcome. The purpose of the bear, who is very, very adorable, but rather mute, is that I, a very garrulous lady, also known as the Vag, give the bear to the guest. And if I'm talking too much, then the guest waves the delectable bear at me. My guest today is my father, Trevor. Hey, Trevor. Dad. Daddy. Hi, Hi darling. Um, now, the reason that my dad sounds somewhat fatigued is that he's just been slaving over a birthday dinner. This is the day on which I um, I celebrate or commiserate with myself <laughs> 50 years on the planet. Um, 50 years ago today, you held me in your arms and today, in 2018, you made me a lovely three-course dinner, replete with my favourite foods. And you've been working at this for, for hours and hours on end. But enough of that. I want to talk, because we often talk, I don't think you've listened to my podcast, and well, well, shouldn't you, young, young Trevor. Um, we like to talk about the movement of history, where society is through different opinions and experiences of that. So if you wouldn't mind, could we talk a little about your childhood in the northern New South Wales town of Mullumbimby? Would that be all right with you? Yeah, sure. Um, And, of course, at my age, I'm an expert in history. Well, you are. You've lived a lot of it. Yes. Um, Dad was born during the Second World War, so he's not strict. No, prior to the Second World War. Okay, well, weeks prior to the Second World War. Um, 1939, apparently he's happy to divulge the year of his birth for you. (laughs) And so he's not strictly speaking a boomer, um, but he is somebody who, unlike previous generations, had the ability to change his life somewhat and change your life and change your circumstances you did. But before we get to that and before we get to talking about how one's personal circumstances can really form who you are and what you think. I want to talk about your childhood in Mullumbimby. I want to talk a bit about your dad. And I want to talk about this for a particular reason, um, which we'll get to, because there's some valuable lessons I think you learned back then that you taught to me when I was a kid. Now, Let's talk about Mullumbimby. Your dad was, you were born in Brisbane, but your dad was a plumber. Indeed. Yeah, my dad was also a soldier during the Second World War. So the early part of 
my life was with a dad absent and a nervous mum. Oh, would you call Marianne nervous, would you, or would you call well, her? Well, I don't know. I, my recollection of my early life in Brisbane was we had a bomb shelter in the backyard, resplat with um, sandbags and what have you. And in 1942, I was three years of age, and I think um, most people of any XY or millennium generation has absolutely no idea of the peril the country was in in 1942. The Japanese were right at our front door and bombing um, the country. Did you have a consciousness of that at that age when I, you were just I, three? I, yeah, because um, I can recall looking for security where um, my mum's favourite cousin used to come and stay to comfort my mother and I would sit between, well, lie between these two women in a big double bed and I would put my fingers in their hair and twirl it around and I, I look back to that as one of my earliest memories as maybe it was my form of security. Maybe, I mean almost certainly to lie you know, as a little three-year-old boy between, you know, two women to whom you were related and who were friends, you know, toiling their hair. Of course this was you, a, a mm. little guy looking for security. So I also have, I, th I think um, I'm glad because I've never actually spoken to you about this, you know, what's your earliest memory. For a lot of people actually to have a conscious memory of being three and then to understand that later on as an adult within the context of history. Not everyone can do that. Um, you can do that. I find it very interesting. I find it also fabulous when anyone can put themselves into a, you know, a social context years later. And remember that children know things. They may not know them directly, but you already have this sense in 1942 of a nation, of your nation being imperiled, of your father fighting for a nation and of the comfort that women can bring. You, you'd you say that at three you were conscious of all these things on that night. Um, certainly not at the time, but as my life pro progressed, um, say when I started to reach puberty. Puberty. Puberty, <laughs> I started to understand the world around me and the value of having a big sister. So the influences of women in my life was quite early and, of course, at that time also the returning soldiers from the Second World War. So many of them must have come back broken. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't say that my dad was broken, but um, he, the generation of fathers at that time were a little remote and it took them 20, 25 years 
to resettle back into some sort of normalcy. Uh, I think that that's an interesting point too. Now, a lot of people of your generation talk, I think sometimes a little um, too critically, of their fathers being very removed as though this was just a social trend, it was just acceptable, it was just the sort of thing that happened. But let, let us not forget, of course, that these men had seen things that would affect any any kind of person. And I think, I mean, you've experienced what we could call trauma in your life. I think I've experienced it in mine. The natural human inclination seems to be sh- to shut down emotionally when you've, you've had a shock or a series of shocks. And w- would you agree with that? To a point, um, because of the cultural sense at the time that um, men were the breadwinners, therefore they had to be the strength of the household. Let, let's not also let, let's also remember that it's not just a cultural sense, but it's a very economic sense because society, particularly, yes, yeah, particularly in the yeah. post-war period, is set up that. Oh, okay, so we have this unit called the family and we're going to give, so this is the Keynesian principles that that came after World War II in particular in Australia, we're going to give all the men jobs and then we're going to call this full employment. And so this idea of the man is very much sort of constructed and accelerated in this period, you know, that the man had to hold it all together um, and, um, and also that the woman had to hold it all together. And any behaviour outside of that was not only aberrant or culturally frowned upon but economically impossible. So it was, you know, dad had to work and mum had to care. Yeah, but a a boy of 14 wasn't considering the uh, economic conditions at the time. Of course. Um, And all I wanted to do was to please my dad because he'd been absent for what I thought was a large portion of my life. And and uh, I, I, I'm sure proportionately it was. Can you remember him coming home or, and how the family received him? No, no, I, I, I can't recall that. Um, Can you remember a period of adjustment? Uh, I think that's why we moved from Brisbane because Brisbane under General MacArthur was the holding line, as it were, once the Japanese reached Brisbane, we were to defend the country whatever. Mm. So it was it. So maybe that was the reason he wanted to get out of Brisbane. To get as far away from... Yeah, yeah, and have a new start, as it were. So you you don't know. that It it could have been, you know, maybe he was shell-shocked or, as we'd call it today, you know, he had post-traumatic stress disorder or maybe um, he just wanted to go to the country. Maybe there were benefits um, for people who moved into regional centres at the time. We don't know. Your parents didn't tell you about every decision they made. But in any case, you found yourself as a quite young boy in this town called Mullumbimby, which, as I understand it, you had 
what we would call, and people don't really think of the the 1940s in Australia like this. So you moved there toward the end of the 1940s, but you would have, from what you've told me about your childhood, what we would call today and what you wouldn't have recognised at the time is a very multicultural experience. Absolutely. Um, so you're, you know, you... I had a Catholic upbringing. And you, you identified as a, a white Australian. I mean, this is how your family understood itself and this is, you well, know... I, I, we were certainly Australian. I don't know about the colour of the skin. My my parents in in that those terms were completely colour blind. My dad's best mate was a Tamil, um, and my mum used to say that um, that the newspapers at the time, which is still probably current today that anyone with a strange-sounding name that had committed a crime, well, people would say, oh, how dreadful, that's what refos, being refugees, do you? But my mum would say as an explanation to anyone that made such a remark, you have no idea what these poor darlings have been through. And I think that's it. Your mum was, and I remember her well, and I remember the day um, of her funeral. Do you remember you and I sat together yes, I in a little parking glebe in Sydney? Yeah. And I held your hand and you just bawled. Yes. And then I later disgraced myself at the funeral by bawling because she was an unusual lady. I forgive her for voting Liberal <laughs> because <laughs> she was... Um, she was a peculiarly humanitarian sort and racism used to get up her ginger, to use a phrase of my mother's, like nobody's business. It was just an affront to her. Well, as was my dad. My dad used to take me to his mates and say, listen, son, you're going to taste some funny food but don't make any comment about it, all right? And um, his mates, as I said, his best mate was a Tamil and his Greeks and Italians, which were referred to in those days as refos. So did you also have much contact with um, uh, uh, Aboriginal people in your childhood? Um, no, not so much Aboriginal people, but certainly Island Pacific Island people because of the geography of the, well, the agricultural of the area. Uh, well, you know, I mean, there was a lot of, as we know, there was a lot of people um, from the South Islands enslaved by the sugar plantations. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The sugar plantations were surrounding us, so therefore there were islanders, but uh, they certainly weren't the Kanakas. Oh, that's, of, I mean, which is an, a racially offensive Term. Yeah, yeah, but it was a term that was in use at the time. Sure, and it's not one you're endorsing the use of, I mean. A absolutely yeah. not, no, but that's what they were known as. There was a lot probably of. Probably 30 years beforehand. I'm sure that you know this, but there was a great deal of solidarity between uh, the people who'd been enslaved by the sugar plantations of Australia and, you know, captured from the, the, the South Sea Islands. And Aboriginal people, um, 
I'm sure that you remember the referendum in 1967 when you were still a very young man. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So this was, you know, a constitutional change. It was probably the most extraordinary referendum in uh, post-Federation Australian history. 91% of people in the nation, as close to unanimity as you can get, voted that the constitutional understanding of Aboriginal people be changed for the better. And one of the major advocates for this was a wonderful woman, uh, I'm sure you'll remember her name, called Faith Bandler. Oh, yeah, from Bribey Island. Yep. Yep. And um, I don't know if you know this, but I've been lucky enough to meet her daughter, Lylon. Oh, how fortunate. And, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter... um, you know, how radical um, um, an interpretation you have um, from my um, experience with young Aboriginal people, they all remember the name Faith Bandler. They all remember this time of, of great solidarity between and very briefly, not only between um, the people that were taken from South Sea Islands and enslaved and Aboriginal people and in many cases a lot of white people who really, really wanted to see a change, a significant change, a change that we're yet to see. So the thing that I wanted to ask you about is that this was impressed on you quite by accident at a very early age. You could have easily been born into another family where they would have used abusive terms about other people and sort of said, you know, any hardship that we have, well, these, you know, new migrants or or, or Aboriginal people or who, whoever, they are all responsible for it. And we're in a time like that again right now in Australia. But you just, I don't know if you remember that you and I used to have talks about uh, race and ethnicity when I was quite young. Do you you remember this? You passing on these lessons to me because we lived in a street. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, when I was in special forces, uh, I had a lot to do with Indigenous people um, and uh, we use the term quite loosely today of remote communities, but um, I'm sure their population of remote communities back in the early 60s was a much greater population than it is today. And I learnt to, because um, uh, I was a young man then, and... Um, rather than a stupid young man, I was starting to mature and I found that we had so much in common with the Indigenous people. They used to take the piss out of us so so well and had a wonderful sense of humour. This has been documented um, by different historians, both black and white, in Australia and, you know, sometimes you see that, you know, the condition of tall poppy syndrome, which we, which is not a tradition, an Australian culture cultural tradition that I dislike at all. I actually quite like saying, oh, you're too big for your boots, you know, settle down, mate. <laughs> And there are, um, you know, historians and anthropologists that credit this uh, this cultural tendency, you know, where you, 
you hate anybody who's too big for, for their boots to <laughs> uh, many, many different Aboriginal language groups because, you know, there the, the were far less pyramidic structures typically uh, in Aboriginal culture and it was like, you know, if you were too big for your boots, if you tried to stand up um, above the crowd, you know, aspiration was something to be derided and taking the piss, taking the mickey, which is also a very Australian habit. You've probably read some of these things, you know, that that there is white Australia, the dominant white culture in Australia does not acknowledge the very deep debt it has for all these values that it fights for. Absolutely. That drives me crazy. That, that it owes very intimately to Aboriginal Australia because, I mean, there's so many people like you of your age and you, you talk to them and you... You know, we um, people who are younger, uh, millennials or Generation Zs, they just sort of presume that this is the first moment in Australian culture where people have tried to welcome each other and really understand each other. But the fact is when you have a neighbour and your dad has a best mate or whatever, you do live side by side and shoulder to shoulder with people and if your life's okay. And there were many, many things about a northern New South Wales childhood in the 1940s and 50s, I imagine, that were quite idyllic. I mean, you were poor, you guys were very poor, but there were certain things about it that were idyllic as well. You had some of the most beautiful country on earth to roam around on. You just had mango trees that you could pick mangoes off. You had, you know, really beautiful siblings all of whom is still alive, all of whom you, you you still love. You had a crazy but fascinating mother and there was a lot about your childhood that was really, really pleasant, right? Absolutely. Um, I would, um, when anyone asks about my childhood, I don't describe it so much in idyllic terms, but I describe us as free-range mm. children. And um, I mean, you guys used to go kilometres a day. Yeah. And your sister used to sort of identify wildflowers and all of that. I mean, it sounds, some of it, I mean, I know that in winter it was very cold and you had to all warm yourself as little kids with hot bricks and... um, (laughs) Wrapped in newspapers. And, you know, there was not, you know, all of the modern pleasures available to, that would be available to you soon and and it was hard yards and that the nuns were mean and all of this, but there was still, as you say, this free-range aspect to your youth. Yeah, but we never saw ourselves as being poor. In fact, we saw our superior lifestyle where we were quite self-sufficient with chooks and veggies. Mm. And and so you could have, you know, withstood an economic depression, you could have withstood war, all of of this sort of stuff. Well, that's a very good point because uh, obviously my parents, if you look at the history of it, they, they lived through the depression. And they were alive for the First World War. Yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. So uh, they had seen their their share of um, sadness. And, of course, they were also residents of Brisbane, which has long been home to Australia's rural poor. It's not the shiny city of, you know, escalating throughout the 90s and the zero zeros of, you know, of, of property prices and stuff. I mean, Brisbane was very much, and David Maloof, 
the Australian uh, writer describes it as, you know, long the home of Australia's rural poor. There was crushing poverty in Brisbane. And this still is. Yeah, well, I I had cousins that lived in the very trendy area now of West End. Yeah. Uh, Look, West End has still got its fair share of fabulous uh, 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 miscreants, and I say that with with love. Uh, the last time I went up to West End, I saw a pal of mine called Richard Bell, who is um, an artist that is notable for winning the Telstra Indigenous Art Prize. And you know, he well, Chrissy Johnson also lives oh, of the Kransky sisters. Yes, okay. um, so West End is still home to um, artist miscreants. Um, there is still a very um, strong Murray population there. Um, I've had lots of great experiences in West End over the years with activism and stuff. You know, the Tenants Union always seemed to be based in West End. People fighting against poverty seem to be based in West End. So that And there's Austra- one of Australia's best bookshops there too called Avid Reader. Um, so, yeah, it is quite funny to see that it's quite posh now, but there still are these pockets of, of resistance and, and, you know, people who remember the poverty and are informed by the poverty. Well, it was so poor. Um, I can remember my cousin taking me down to the Brisbane River and the factories were pouring out all their horrid sulphurous contents straight into the Brisbane River. Do you know what the major manufacturing interest was in Brisbane? Uh, there was um, a glassworks there, which uses, I think, a lot of caustic or did you products. Use, yeah. And um, we were walking, he said, come down to the river. And we were walking in the mud shores of the river. I remember coming back and virtually my skin was burnt on my feet from yeah. walking through the caustic. So, um, and they were very poor people as yeah. well as everyone was poor. Then there was very few people. And then, so as a young man. Escaped poverty. Yeah. And then what occurred for white Australians particularly um, because of the policy that followed was the opportunity for what now people choose to call middle-out growth as opposed to trickle-down growth. So you grew up in a time where, you know, your parents were very much um, working class or underclass. You have this very clear memory of people having nothing, of effluent running into the river as it does again today, the natural environment being destroyed, blah, blah, blah. And there's two classes in Australia. Like I really do not buy this Australia as a classless society stuff. It never has been. It was founded on three classes, you know, like. Uh, well, we never saw it that way as kids. That we, of course. We, we saw children, it. Everyone was poor. Yeah. and um, Because most everyone was. And But what occurred in your life after that was a period of extraordinary opportunity to change your life, to change the conditions of your life that was available to many Australians, chiefly white ones. And so your life changed as you became a young man. You did leave your high school early. Why did you do that back in the 50s? Um, Well, my earliest memories, as I said, was uh, the insecurity um, brought about 
by the imminent invasion of this country. Preceded, of course, by a Great Depression. Yes, but which was of no knowledge to me at the time. But stuff, this sort of stuff, it still gets handed down whether you know it or not. Oh, yes, 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 certainly. My Well, my dad used to say it was the best time of his life because he hit the wallaby, meaning you just went around and uh, with a swag and, and found work and he found he had um, a uh, skill of cutting hair, so he'd set up. Did he really? Like, yeah, he'd set up by the So side. he's quite, quite good at cutting hair? Yeah, yeah. So Ladies I, and men or just men? Hmm? Ladies and men or just men? I don't know. He never specified the gender of the people that uh, he's... Okay, so let's say he was this freelance... As a young man, he was this freelance barber yeah, yeah. who put, you know, filled his swag, travelled around the nation cutting people's yeah, hair. Yeah, yeah. Because um, he had good fine motor control. He was a plumber yeah, after Yeah, well, all. he was a plumber. So, yeah, he was the last apprentice to do a tinsmithing, plumbing and gas fitting uh, apprenticeship. Tinsmithing died out. So yeah, he was he was lucky enough to find some freedom in the depression because he was the right age. He was a young man. But let's get back to you as a young man. So you left school early because of this sense of urgency that you needed to make money. No, no, not at all. Um, I was surrounded. We lived opposite the cenotaph for the Anzacs. Yep. Um, and my, you were probably raised on Biggles books and all of this? Yeah, yeah, but apart from that, um, my dad remained to be, he was the All-Australian boy, he was the coach of the local rugby league side, he was president of the RSL, he was the all-round good Australian boy. And my earliest memories of all my uncles and aunties in uniform. Um, and uh, after the recollection I had of curling my mother and her cousin's hair was with lead soldiers on the ver- closed-in veranda of our house. God, it's amazing that you're still alive. <laughs> And couldn't you didn't swallow any of the lead soldiers? So what you're saying is that you you you, I always I just wanted to be a soldier. And so you tried to be an officer, I believe. Well, I didn't try. Um, That was later on. Okay. Um, I I was quite a bright student. Uh, I've only just found out recently from my sister that I'd won a scholarship to a boarding school, but. Obviously, my parents uh, thought that that was going to be too big a strain on the family budget, so it didn't go ahead. Um, but no, I, I, I. Um, so you decided to join the special force, forces at quite a young I, I age. I didn't. No, you don't decide to join the special forces. You're chosen. Um, you apply for the selection course and I was just so un- so fortunate to be selected. And then um, I had, um, as you do in, with the training, 80% of casualties are in training in special forces. I think that's still the case with the SAS. It is, yes. 
and um, I was medically downgraded. Because? Um, because of tropical ulcers that I had. Um, Stop playing with the bear, Dad. Tell me the story of your life. You're listening to Knackers in the Vag. And my guest uh, today, which happens to be recorded on the occasion of my 50th birthday because <laughs> I am a desiccated raisin, um, is, um, is is my dad. And we're just talking about my dad being, oh, he's got the winds Coonawarra, which he's brought down for the occasion. <laughs> and my dad is just talking about the end of his high school and uh, how – you know, there was a certain respect for the military, um, a certain urge that he can remember sort of being born in him at a very young age that you had to protect the home front, that you had to protect the women. He applied for the uh, special um, air services um, and was granted entry and it was a very tough time and I've spoken to him a little about his time in the SAS, but he can't say too much because he still respects the Secrets Act, don't you, Dad? Well, I not only respect the Secrets Act, I respect those who've come after me who have also had to respect it. Mm. There's a little bit of um, palaver in the news that I'm sure has displeased you greatly lately about the behaviour of the SAS, especially in Afghanistan. Ah, well... Our wonderful ABC made a correction. That vehicle that was um, sighted was not an SAS vehicle. It was one of the other branches of the special forces. But I would say also that people kind of go into the go into army um, for different reasons, and maybe they did back in your day. Probably, um, and once again, um, the services are colour blind. There was l- they'll take any body. Oh, not so much. Oh, as long as it's a a body that meets the yeah yeah criteria. meets the requirements, um, and particularly in special forces where. Um, yeah, you know, he's just brothers, basically. I didn't realise that. Are women uh, permitted in the SAS now or not? Hmm? Are women permitted in the SAS now or not? I, I don't actually... They they, um, they can apply. Yeah. I mean, I actually don't give a shit either way, personally. Um, but... They can apply, but um, the selection course is... Um... Physically demanding. That's yeah right. Okay, so we we won't talk about uh, about that too much. But I think Dad no. will be okay if I tell you that the experience marked him in both positive and negative ways. Oh yes, you can't come out of a situation like that without some scars. And I think that it's okay if I share that you are a bit of a pacifist these days. You acknowledge the need for the protection of borders and national security, but I would say that you are a person who is repulsed by the idea of war, particularly unnecessary war, of which we've fought very many in the the, the 20th and 21st centuries in in the West, thanks to our association with the US. I mean, I'm sure that your experience of being a highly trained soldier and Vietnam was something that was very contradictory for you. I'm sure that it made you sick 
And I'm sure that at some point or another you thought, why the fuck are we fighting this stupid war? Am I right or not? Um, or do you to not- a degree because I still, it was only a couple of years and I knew that the people I'd been extraordinarily close to were fighting, were experiencing that. And yet at the same time, and I thought, well, who am I? I should be with these guys. That's what I was trained for. Because these were your brothers? Hmm? These were your brothers? These are my, my brothers, yeah. And these are people, you know, you'd trained and you'd seen men die, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I, I, I just saw the political situation as so it was, stupid. It was a bullshit war and it was... Yeah, yeah and I, it was, I realised yeah, that. But yeah. if you can imagine being torn I down understand. the middle... I understand. And it the, was a terrible time in yeah. my life. You know, the, at the one on the one hand, you have your identity and your career constituted by this need to protect your nation, which you'd mm-hmm. experienced as a young man as a very multicultural nation, as one where women were to be respected, um, as, you know, a, a, and you grew up on very fertile beautiful land. And I think you also had a sense that it was Aboriginal land. When I talked to you and 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 Auntie Jill and your brothers, you still, as people did at the time, use a lot of local Aboriginal names to describe local landmarks because that was just the way then, you know. There's oh, yeah, mountains yeah. with Aboriginal names. You knew yeah. that this was Aboriginal land. Yes. And so there's so many complex reasons that a person can have to want to defend their nation with their body and everything that they have. And then, I mean, imagine, you know, it's the 1960s, the early 1970s, and you start seeing for the very first time satellite pictures of what is occurring in that place and you start to reconsider why the hell are we destroying this nation that didn't ask to be destroyed and why the hell are we, you know, engaged with the US in the devastation of this. And I can very much imagine that you were torn down the middle. And I think this is a very common experience for all sorts of people. You know, you just feel there's there's two parts of you, one which has one identity, which is the national identity and the urge to, um, you know, be a part of something and protect, and then the other one where you see history changing before your very eyes. One of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is that I I see a similar division occurring in people in the present era, you know? Like, mm-hmm. so we can call Vietnam a very threshold experience, like one of the defining experiences of the 20th century for many people in the West and, of course, for everybody in Vietnam. Well, I, th- I think also um, you mentioned my officer's studies I, I went to officer cadet school after um, my period in special forces um, through a very circuitous set of circumstances. We won't go into it. It's too bad. And um, we studied the um, campaigns of the French in Vietnam and it occurred to me then that 
this is bloody stupid. That they had no business there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Did you ever tie that to the invasion of Australia out of interest as a young man? No. No. And um, we spoke about in the discussions of the campaigns about the um, how intelligent um, Ho Chi Minh was. Oh, he really was though, right? <laughs> I mean, he was a cl- clever dude. He yeah? was. And uh, I didn't know at that stage that the man had been... Um, Educated in Paris. Yeah, and also worked as a waiter. In Paris. Yeah, I mean, the guy knew... Um, and, and this guy, the guy blossomed into this uh, very, uh, very smart general. The interesting thing is, and um, I don't know if you've ever read it, but uh, I think I got you to buy it for me at a secondhand bookstore when I was a teenager. There's, um, you know, Malcolm X? Mm. Um, so the autobiography of Malcolm X, yeah. um, I read while I was a teenager. It looked interesting. I didn't know who this guy was, but he looked immensely cool. And he has this analogy, and it's been years since I read it, so excuse me if I don't get it right, where he's talking about the difference between um, in the USA uh, between the field slave, the black field yes, slave, yes. and the house slave. And um, he's talking about what the field, the, the, and then he segues into a bit, uh, talking about what the house slave knows. So if you're one of the privileged few permitted to work the plantation right, house, yeah. right, you know every corner of that plantation house. You understand the dominant culture, but they don't know anything about yours. And you go back and you you consort with the the field slaves and you live in shit yourself. And so you have this understanding of two worlds, but the dominant world has no understanding of yours. And this is an interesting strategic advantage, which Mm. Malcolm X wants to tell black people in the USA of all faiths that this is what you have. You know how the dominant culture works. They have no interest in how your culture works they don't know anything about you. And this is sort of the case with the Ho Chi Minh type figure where he'd studied Western ideas of war and of dominance for a long time. And well, was- that's in the history of Vietnam. Um, I don't know whether you know it, but there was a Bodica in Vietnam because... Bo- Vi- Bo- like Bodhichia, the, 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 the warrior, the lady the, warrior. Yeah, the yeah. Anglo warrior, queen. Yeah. There was equivalent in Vietnam because Vietnam had been invaded by the Chinese for 900 years. Well, I mean, this is one of the strengths of the Viet Cong as well, that there were many, many women fighting. So this was not an expectation that Western forces had, that, that they could effectively double... Their, their their fighting force and there was, I, I know a lady actually. I, I think that was pretty much overstated in the Vietnam War. Oh, no, I mean I know I know people who have written theses about the participation of women um, in the peasant army and what have you and there were a lot of, from my understanding, there were an awful lot of women involved at, well, you can't even call it the front lines in Vietnam because this is one of the reasons. I mean, I'm sorry if you're bored and, you know, you're like, why the fuck are they going on about a war? <laughs> a war that I can't even remember. 
But it was a colonial war. It was a colonial war and it was sort of the last gasp of what we call colonialism, but um, it was also one of the first breaths of what we call globalisation and, you know, a lot of people argue that the the things are the same things. Dad was saying something to me earlier that reminded me of a quote I really like. So he's talking about how his early education, your education, of course, you know this, right? It doesn't just occur at school. It doesn't just occur in kind of, you know, the moral lessons you receive from your parents or others. I mean, in this simple way, we call it conditioning. It occurs in the actual circumstances of where you live. So Dad was Mm. born in 1939. There's a French philosopher that I think has some interesting stuff to say who was born in 1929 and his name is Paul Virilio. He's famous for a book written in 1977 called Speed and Politics, right? And one of the great things that he says, and you will, I think, as the young people say, find this relatable, Dad, He says war was my university. Now, despite the fact that this man who um, of some interest maybe to you uh, is an architect as well as a war historian and a sociologist, he says war was my university and he recalls in interview this time in 1939. So he's, I can't remember where he is in, in France, I think maybe it's Nancy or something, but so he hears on the radio that let's say it was Nancy, um, that German troops are marching into France. So he hears this on the radio. Ten minutes later. 39, they were marching into Czechoslovakia. Well, I'm sorry, Poland. Okay, no. well, whatever the case was, whenever they were marching into France, he heard it on the radio. And then. Ten- no, it was 41. Okay, think, well, yeah. it was 41. Thank you very much. So ten minutes later, he hears the boots of the German army mm-hmm. walking past his window as a young boy. And this is a threshold experience for him, you know, and it actually starts defining what he understands about the world. Like I hear something before it happens and then it happens and then it's real. And a lot of his stuff is, you know, about that gap between, you know, the report or the representation and the real thing happening. But you know, he says very much that as a child that his experience of war and everything that it meant like absolutely informs the way that he thinks. And this is a big thing for me, as you know, and I've tried to make you read Marx, Dad, and I've tried to make you read my book about Marx. But, you know, you understand this thing about how our being, our being in the world creates our consciousness and understanding of it like the things that are going around us impact us. Oh, absolutely. Us. Being is all. But a lot, of, a lot of people I find have the reverse idea. They think if only we had better ideas, then we could make a better world. Oh, for goodness sake. But, yeah, yeah see, so you're actually a Marxist. I'll convince you one day. Yes. Um, but, you know, so if we use the correct language and if we don't be mean to Sarah Hansen Young or whatever, then we'll have great examples and we'll have a better world. But nothing affects you more than being a little boy or a little girl and, and you know, being in between, you know, your mum and her cousin slash best friend and understanding, you know, that you would grow up to protect this institution of womanhood or nothing affects you more than being a young kid and hearing on the radio that the German troops were about to march past your house and then 10 minutes later you hear German troops, you hear Nazis marching past your house. These experiences form us. You know, whatever kind of trauma, it doesn't have to be a big deal, it doesn't have to be war, but whatever kind of trauma or shock you received, especially in early life, 
is going to be a very, very significant force in your life. And, you know, for any of us to say that we can just move beyond that and just move past it and one day become ideologically fucking pure simply because we think our way into being better humans. No, we we can't do that. I think the most brave thing that we can do and the most honest thing that we can do is look at the conditions of our youth, our adulthood, our recent conditions, what we benefit from, what we don't benefit from, and then look at your beliefs and say, maybe just ask yourself the question, are my beliefs the result of my existence? I'm betting that the answer is yes. But back to Dad, here on Knackers and the Vag, let's hear a little bit more about Vietnam and how this split you down the middle. Um, I'm going to be a bit rude here. That's all right. We're a very rude podcast. And um, I think <laughs> the most important quote I heard from the Vietnam War was by Ho Chi Minh, which describes very well the history of that poor nation, was, he said, I'd much prefer to kiss French ass than to eat Chinese shit. (laughs) And I thought that was most telling as to how he adapted in his early years to the French occupation. So it was about 50 years ago, around about the time of my birth, let's say, yeah. that the Tet Offensive occurred in Vietnam, um, which had Do two... Do you understand what Tet means? What does it mean? Uh, well, well, Tet is, because Vietnam is a Buddhist country... Well, it appeared to be, but Tet is the virtually the spring festival, as it were. Right. So the Tet Offensive, as far as I know, occurred in uh, the early part of 1968 and then again around May of 1968. It occurred in two parts. Yep. And um, this was the turning point of the war. And... I mean, the amount that Nixon spent on the, this putrid war effort, well, it changed the world in its own way. I mean, this is why, you know, gold is no longer this incontrovertible fact in the world, right? I mean... The, let, let, let's not blame Nixon. No, let's blame Henry fucking Kissinger. Um, that man was a butcher. No, um, Kennedy went into... Oh, I know. I'm all for blaming Kennedy as well. Kennedy went into... And then poor old Lyndon Baines Johnson. Are you one of those people who thinks that LBJ got the short end of the stick and that that he was possibly one of... If circumstances had been different, that possibly he was one of the greatest ever American presidents? I'm not saying he's one of the greatest American presidents. A lot of people believe that. the fact that the man got through the Congress and the Senate, the Equal Rights Program, the the boy gets my vote for that. Yeah. Now, anything else? But it was just, I mean... You, from I wouldn't m- say he's the greatest. No, American no. Just president. some people have this view that, yeah, yeah, as you're okay. probably aware, that 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 that, yeah. that that Lyndon Johnston was a, a very good president. But like, anyway, so 
we will say though that um, the uh, partnership of, of of Nixon and and Kissinger really accelerated war spending to the point that the um, well McNamara was in there as well, right? To the Secretary of Defence, and so they drained the gold reserves, and then what we see at the same time is the um, you know the petrodollars scandal yep, unfolding, yep, yep, yep. but you know we also see um, the beginning of neoliberalism. In, in this are, era. Are we going to be boring to your audience? Probably, Dad. I don't give that? a fuck. <laughs> Since when have I cared about being boring? You, you know what? You know what? Walk around this. No, time. but you how, know, no, how, no. how relative is this? Because to... I, you know what? Like you meet very young people sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, I taught young people for. You did, a TAFE, ten... a great institution. Yeah, for 10 years. Dad, yeah. Dad later became, well, quite the builder. He's a wonderful builder and he's obsessed with changing physical objects or destroying them. He loves that. I think it's just in him. He loves building things and tearing things down both. He finds no more pleasure than that. Um, <laughs> I would say, you, you know what, like, okay, so we're talking about, you know, historical incidents, how you found them either consciously or unconsciously affected you. I talk to the most amazing fucking youngsters these days who are just so aware of where they are in history. They understand what came before. They don't teach this shit at universities. Like a lot of these young mm. people, you know, like every different skin well, where hue. where do they get every, this information because from? Because they're amazing, right? Young people, especially in the current era, and I'm talking a lot of the time about people under 25 these people are amazing. I just can't tell you how heartened I am by meeting, you know, high school students, first-year university students who Well, are, I have a surrogate grandchild. You do. I, you do. But, you know, they're so hungry to understand I never reproduced for him, neither did his other daughter. Um so he's had to, you know, he's had to outsource to the private sector to get a grandchild. <laughs> and so which I've done very successfully. You have, you have. But, you you know, I mean, young people are, I think, by nature inclined to be fairly amazing. The amount yeah, of information. I'd agree with that. You can remember, right, being young, and I can remember being young, and I can remember that, like, um, you just a sponge-like brain that, that, that you have um, as you speed toward physical maturity. And you can just learn things and you can do this mesmeric reading and you can understand everything in the world. Like there is nothing more terrifying to me than a 25-year-old well-read fucker. They are just going to like outthink me every time, way more quickly, all of that stuff. So you have that natural inclination in young people. You also have a very, very big population of young people, uh, they are also, you know, very various roots, cultural roots and ethnic roots and faith roots in Australia. And they've been living together. They, they, you know, they've got levels of unquestioning tolerance of the other that previous generations haven't had, but also they're in economic shit. They're looking down the barrel of no jobs. And so, of course, when you find yourself in this situation, you're going to start thinking big questions about how did we get here. And I know I might sound falsely optimistic, but I'm not at all. I have some hope, some optimism of the spirit 
that these children, sorry, you're 25, you're a fucking kid, I mean, and good on you. Well, at 50 years of age. These kids, you know, that these babies, I have the optimism of the will that these babies have the pessimism of the intellect to actually change the world in the way that it needs to be changed. And I think that, and this might be sickening to you, I don't know, but I think a good part of that, and there is some research that suggests this, that young people no longer have their national identity as a primary identity. It's so, you know, when I grew up, I, I, I was, you know, I was raised to sort of think of myself as Australian. And I do think that there are some Australian characteristics. And we discussed those before and how a lot of those are actually founded in the original inhabitants of Australia. Absolutely, yeah. And the good things about That's being... That's one thing that we've overlooked in our culture, how much an influence that is. Oh, yeah, I know. There are some scholars who've, who've written about it, and I'll show you some stuff later if you like, but, uh, the, you know, it is a big thing and it affects our language, it um, affects the way we think about sport, it, it, it affects our traditional disdain for authority, a lot of stuff. This is what a lot of people say. And I think that this thing is um, great about Australian culture and I think you, you need to be a so-called new arrival for not very long before you understand a phrase like, oh, don't work too hard, you know, and I, I kind of love that about Australia. It's like, oh, you know, stuff the boss, you know, and we wouldn't have had yeah. the Shearer's strike or the Eureka stockade and we wouldn't have been the birthplace of like Western labour movements, which we really were, without all of that Shit kicking. We wouldn't have been, you know, among the first to have the vote for women, the first to have the eight hour day, if it wasn't for that mass disdain for authority. You know, there were things in Australia in the past that we could be proud of. And now there's a lot to be ashamed of. This stupid fucking culture war where, you know, people are talking in Parliament about who's sexist and who isn't. I don't care. You know, it's like, it's, 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 what about the people? But you know, what yeah, I, it's what unites us rather I, than. I what know, I know, and us. what I'm saying is because young people don't have this nativist or this nationalistic or this patriotic tendency, um, and that they the way that they relate to people, um, you know, might cross borders, you know, and is not so much Australian. I think that they're, I think that there are potentially great force. But the other thing that I wanted to get back to is this sense, which I think a lot of other people have. um, I mean, not everybody's like a fantastic revolutionary who wants to change the world. And let's face it, none of us really want to change the world. All we want is a good life. You know, all everybody ever wants is a good life. Um, Well, not so much a good life. We want peace. Well, we want flourishing. We want human flourishing. You know, I mean, this is an old quest. Like what does it take for the many to flourish? You know, like this is the question. What I mean, this is the this is the ethical question always for me. What world will allow everybody to flourish? You know, what world yeah. will allow everybody to have the things that they need for their survival and the things that they need for their contentment? Yes. Yeah. No, you know, no argument here. How can everyone have dignity, and how can no, everyone contribute? That's the most important thing. Of course, it is. Is providing dignity. And survival, the means for survival. Yes. To yeah. everyone. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what we want. And, I, you know, I see this with 
young people, I, I think. And they, so you asked me the question going back several minutes ago, isn't it boring that we talk about the Vietnam War? But fuck it, Dad. No, like, we, I don't have any regulations about how long and what, you know, we get to talk about. And there are a few thousand people who tune into this. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm very old school, who 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 uh, stream this. <laughs> and, you know, I get so many lovely emails from these ridiculous exchanges, which are very free-flowing and, you know, I... I oh, that's a lovely form of contact if people contact no, you. No, they're like, oh, well, you said this and what do you mean and I'd like to talk yeah. about it with you in greater detail or can you give me any reading or here's my view and here's some reading you might like, Helen. I mean, that shit, you know, that's my comrades talking. These are people who want a world in which everybody can flourish and everybody has the means to survival and and good survival and everybody wants to contribute to the common good you know and that's what i think at our core most of us want i mean most of us are not uh, you, you know psychopaths most of us want a world without pain, don't we? We no, don't. I've worked with a number of psychopaths. Yeah, in but my I would military career. I'm sure you have, <laughs> and I've worked with some psychopaths in media. Believe you me, right? I mean, can you imagine some of the pricks that I've worked with in media? These people think that they're all knowing, and mm. they think that they're the arbiters of the final morality. And it's like, you know, it's not like let's pose questions to other people. It's like let's tell other people what to do. Absolutely. And for me... It, I, I've mentioned this yeah. to you as something that I fear. In I know. You, yeah, okay, well, let's talk about that then. So my father, unfortunately, and I'm going to out you, he's a reader of The Australian, right? And I think, you know... No, uh, well, well, let's... Um, Clarify that. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm glad you find some shame and some need to clarify it. <laughs> this is not shame. But yeah, it should be. I like to read and I like a distraction from the heavy stuff that I read. Yeah, so you read Jared so, Henderson. So, um, he's, no, I don't read Jared. You read Jared's lifestyle. Poor old Jared. Oh, hey, fuck lucky. Jared. I, I feel sorry for poor old Jared. Why? Because he, he just seems so persecuted. Well, this is the trick of the right, isn't it, <laughs> to say, oh, we're being oppressed. You know, you probably don't look at the stupidity of well, Twitter. Well, probably let's get away from the Australian. No, 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 no. I no. love the review and I love the weekend magazine. Okay. That lovely woman from the Northern Territory. That okay, okay. Well, all right. Has so, the worst like, bloody job in Australia. Let's all agree that the Australian Arts Review is more or less okay. And I would yeah. like I would like to thank uh, the Australian for the lovely review they gave my book about Marxism. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's actually really nice cheek you do that. Um, but so that they actually do have the money because it's this heavily subsidised place that, you know, Rupert wants and they do give some of the money for good reporting. So great, great, great. But the thing that you were about to say is that you don't like people in media or politics moralising to others about how they should behave. This Ab is Absolutely. Yeah. So it's like I'm, I, you know I agree with you. So when I hear... Sarah Hansen Young, okay, like that. I'm going to make a terrible admission to you. Yeah. I vote green, right? You vote for who? I vote for the Greens, okay. 
I mean, oh it's no, it's either that or draw a cock and balls on my ballot because I yeah, don't, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. like the major parties. They can get fucked. I, I, yep, look, I can yeah, appreciate, so, I can appreciate that. I can really appreciate that. And I know from but personal. Jesus, you must be desperate. Uh, well, I am desperate. Yeah. Many and many people are. So you know, probably even. But if, you're not been a person to believe in fairies at the end of the garden. No, but I mean, what alternative do I have? Yeah. I either yeah. put in a donkey vote or I vote green. Well, what the hell are we going to do? Well, this is one of the questions that I oh, like to is keep this asking. A great introduction to Marxism. No, Dad, don't worry. I've already <laughs> tried to make you read. Yeah. You know, and tomorrow we're going to, on our way to Springvale to have the, uh, the, <laughs> the all you can eat Pakistani buffet. Uh, I'll read you, um, you know, a little bit of um, Chapter 1 of Capital. Mm -hmm. But, no, this isn't the great introduction to Marxism. This is the great introduction to what I think are one of the questions of the age. Now, no, I don't want to get all Marxy on you. And I, I, you know, but one of the things about Marx that you need to remember is that he's a philosopher as much as he's... You know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, no question. And, and, no question. And so this question of human flourishing... Is is at the essence of the young Marx, and so he writes very early on, like um, each according to their ability and each according to their needs, and he also writes very early on um, that um, the the condition for the freedom of all is the freedom of each. So unless would you believe that I studied Marx? Well, Marx was part of our economic studies at high school. Well, it should have been. I mean, yeah. absolutely, it should have been. You should learn Marx and, you, you know, we wouldn't have had people like Keynes if they hadn't read Marx who explained that capitalism has crisis tendencies and it does. You can't just let capitalism go on and on and on ad infinitum without it being marshalled by different policies because when you do, you just get this monopoly, you get trade unions crushed and you don't get any pushback and the system dies. All the money goes to the top. So even if you're not a revolutionary Marxist, the point about economics is that you actually need a critique of capitalism in order to preserve capitalism. Me, I'd rather do away with capitalism, but I'm a realist as much as I'm, you know, idealist about the possibilities for the future, idealist in the common sense. Of course, I'm a materialist. That's one for you uh, um, boffins there. Um, but without a critique of capitalism, you don't get capitalism surviving. It, it, you you absolutely don't. Like I never thought of it that way. No, well, it's it's a thing. Like you need communists and you need people who critique Absol capitalism absolutely. to in order to preserve capitalism. So yeah, but where, where's the voice? We don't hear that. Voice. Well, it's been you know, like it's very unpopular. You know, I mean, you know, and you know that, you know, you can testify that I've been a bit Marxy since my teenage years, haven't I? Oh, God. <laughs> Save me from it. And I've, yeah. you know, in order yeah, to, you have and for my, for my brief period of, of being well paid, I really stifled that voice because, you know, you had to believe that, you know, I spouted shit for a long time saying, oh, you just need to be nice, you just need to be on your best behaviour and the world will change as no, a result. No, I, I disagree and, there. No, I agree. I disagree too. Like I don't think that there is any fucking point in telling people don't be sexist, 
don't be racist. I think that the point is, and getting back to the idea of your This girl is a person of great integrity. When she's referring to that period of time that she was a celebrity who was (laughs) earning pretty good damn dough. I I was earning good dough. Um, She would be so wonderful with her... Fans. Oh, this, no, Dad. This you is... were. You 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 took so much time. But they were. I was. And she off air. She would talk to the girls from Dubbo who are being bashed by their bloody. Well, I mean, what else would you do? And... What else would you do as a human being? What else would you do? Like you get a call. Well, exactly. From That's some my chick point. in the country who'd been fucked up by some asshole. What else are you going to do? Except you know. And back in the day, frankly. At the ABC, we then had a system where we could refer those calls on. Yeah. And we could put them through to Lifeline. So this is a kid of integrity. No, 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 no. No, I'm a turd, Dad. I'm a turd. It's not about me. You know, it's not about me. The question is, right, so I was hassling you a bit about, you know, reading The Australian and stuff and so, okay, you say you only read it on the weekends, good, for the arts pages. (laughs) The thing is the Australian tells us how to behave, right? So the Australian says, oh, well, you know, we should stop political correctness gone mad, you know, and if only we stop political correctness gone mad, we'll all be better people. And then you read Fairfax or The Guardian and they'll also say, well, what we need is more politically correct behaviour. And and they're both wrong. They're both fucking wrong because I know personally (laughs) from being in media and you know from being a teacher that you can tell people and tell people things a thousand times over and unless their life experience leads them to truly know this thing that you say is true, they're not going to change their behaviour. The thing that makes people change their behaviour is a good life. You know, the ability to prosper, the ability to be on their own and also involved in a community at the same time, you know, time to love your family. You spent a lot of time loving us two girls when you were young because you had, you know, the eight-hour day. I mean, often you would work far and away above an eight-hour day because you were very hardworking and very committed to, you know, building our home and building the wealth that you could build back in the day as a working-class boy. But you still had the time for that important kind of like social reproduction of decent citizens, right? Hmm. And so did mum. You know, you gave... When do I get to hold knackers? Um, Okay, you get to hold knackers. um, The bear now. I've been speaking with my dad here on Knackers in the Vag. Um, He's a good bloke. He's driven down from Canberra to um, celebrate me becoming very, very old. And he likes me despite the fact I've provided him with zero grandchildren, which is good, (laughs) (laughs) and never been wed and never owned property Um, and, you know, chosen this ridiculous path of trying to, you know, prod people at the right time into saying, hey, maybe you could consider this. And, you know, he knows I just create shit for myself and he loves me anyway. If you've got kids, try to fucking behave like that with them, would you please? Although I know, having said that I can never tell anyone how to behave, that you're not going to pay any attention to me. I just wish you the good life, that you can make those kinds of decisions about how kindly you treat yourself and you, you, you treat others. 
But so you would say very much that you're formed by your life experiences, that what you believe and what you object to very much come from where you lived and who you were and who you're going to be in the future. Absolutely. I, I, I thought for a while it was sounding like the end of a, a vege- uh, evangelical Evangelical. <laughs> Dad's had a few tonight. <laughs> yeah, I'll just let you I know have. that for nothing, <laughs> as have I. Yeah, well, we have to celebrate we her do. 50th birthday. We've been drunk we? for two days. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. We're uh, okay. we're half human, half Shiraz at the moment yes. in the Australian tradition. <laughs> well, Shiraz, um, Merlot and... Cabernet. Cabernet, yeah. Yeah. Um, so all of you guys out there... Um, we love you all. Yeah. Look, thank you if you've lasted this far. I hope you've got uh, to know a little bit about the uh, very decent bloke who is largely responsible for any fucking decency left within me. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, let's let's try to, um, you know, maybe ignore prescriptions for a, a better moral behaviour. Dad knows that they don't work when you're told to be a certain kind of person. You don't listen, do you? No. It just makes you buck against the trend. Of course. And by these means, unfortunately, we create fascists. It happened just before the years of my dad's birth. You know, it's so similar to the conditions today, comrades. You know, like the wealth inequality that we face in the West today is statistically indistinct from the wealth inequality of 1929 across the West before the big crash and where people find that life is hard, in that hard ground grows the weed of hatred. And how do you fertilise the weed of hatred? Tell one group to hate the other. Hate people who aren't using politically correct language. Hate people who are using politically correct language. Neither of those things is the solution. I think that the only solution and the only way out is, and I don't want to come over like some fucking tedious humanist here, (laughs) but just to say that every human life has equal value and that you can fight with everybody for a better world because, I mean, Dad, you must be worried about the shape of the future. No, I'm not. When you mentioned all those beautiful young people who have a... A global outlook. They do. They really do. Um, that's the future. I hope. And, um, I mean, you're our only hope, Obi-Wan babies. So fucking get to it. I'm too old. So is he. <laughs> 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 Love you, Dad. Love you, darling.